We are going through the book of Galatians. And last week I talked about the idea that Jesus was sent. God sent Jesus, Paul says, so that we would be made sons of the living God. And ladies, that includes you too. Sons in Roman law had more rights and privileges that daughters didn't have. And so he uses that word not to be sexist, but because if he'd said sons and daughters, it wouldn't have the same power. But the idea is Jesus was sent, Paul says, to make us sons or sons and daughters of the living God. And the Spirit was sent, Paul says, so that we would feel like sons and daughters. And now we get into this section, and I I want you to see this connection The gospel, the reality that we're not just made God's friends by what Jesus did, but we're actually brought into the family of God and made into God's children, his sons and daughters adopted by grace. That reality, when it begins to take root in us, should mold us and shape us so that it's not just true that Jesus comes to make us sons, and the Spirit comes to make us feel like sons, but the Spirit also is at work in all of God's children to make them look like sons and daughters of the living God, to make them take on the family image, if you will. And the way Paul talks about it here in Galatians 4, especially in verse 19, is really powerful. He uses the language of childbirth and says that he's longing and groaning for Christ to be formed in the Galatians, for them to actually become Christ-like. And something has happened to rupture that or to break that progression. If you recall, if you've been around for our study on Galatians, what happened was some false teachers have come along after Paul had preached the gospel to these people in Galatia. Some false teachers came along and said, what Paul told you was partly right, but it wasn't the whole truth. To really be a good Christian that God really loves, you need to do A, B, C, D, and E. And if you really are going to be a good Christian, you better toe the line. And what we're going to find out in this section here is that whatever quote-unquote gospel you believe has huge implications for your relationships. In some ways, the focus tonight is more on how does this gospel that we've been talking about week after week, how does that revolutionize your relationships? Because what you see here with Paul is a man who is deeply committed to these people who really are driving him crazy. And yet he doesn't back away. As a matter of fact, he says that, that his whole being is sort of, I mean, One of the things they tell you when you go to childbirth classes, which I did with Wendy, um, is that pregnancy is a total body experience. It doesn't just affect parts of your body. It affects every bit of you. And Paul, that that image is very applicable to Paul. He's he's just, his, his whole being, he says, is like in the pangs of childbirth, longing for Christ to be formed in you. And he's brokenhearted and outraged. If you, can under, if you can understand loving somebody so much that you're both furious with them and brokenhearted for them, that's Paul when he thinks about these Galatians. This is a very personal part of this letter. And I think there's incredible lessons for us in what does the gospel have to say to the way we relate to one another? Because I don't know if you're like me, but I just find that relationships are really messy. They're really messy. 
And generally, I like to take the path of least resistance in relationships. Paul, as we're going to see here, as we're going to read this right now, one of the things you see about Paul is he does not take the path of least resistance with this relationship. His highest goal is not for them to like him. His highest goal is not his comfort or their comfort. But the gospel calls him to something much deeper, much bigger, and yet much more difficult and heartbreaking. So let's read this passage. Start in chapter 4 at verse 12. Paul writes, I plead with you, brothers, and it really is gender neutral, brethren. Ladies are not excluded here. I plead with you, brethren, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, the false teachers, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Paul has expressed his very heart to us here. Because, Lord, this is your word, and it expresses your heart. We pray, Lord, that it would touch us tonight, that we would seek to understand what does it mean to groan for the people that you've put us in relationship with. And what does it mean to hear you groaning for us until Christ be formed in us? We ask you to teach us tonight. Send your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. What an image. Groaning as in the pangs of childbirth. I like like that. Pangs of childbirth. That's the old King James. Sometimes the King James words are so rich. Um, even in our day of modern medicine, birth is not a pleasant experience. I remember the first time when I was just out of college and I'd had a friend from college who had moved down here, she and her husband, I'd been in their wedding. And I remember when she had their first baby going to the hospital, this is the first time I'd ever been to the hospital after someone had had a baby and I saw her and literally her eyes were bugging out of her head <laughs> from what she had went through. <laughs> like it, the force, the pressure had started like... It's intense. This is an intense thing. The pangs of childbirth. And certainly even more so, yeah, and all the girls are like, uh, I don't want that. I've not seen it again. And they got better, you know. <laughs> so, but that was a pretty intense thing. Childbirth is a very, very intense thing. We actually had two C-sections. So we took, you know, we went to all the childbirth classes where they really kind of freak you out. At least they freak the husbands out. 
and you'd learn all the breathing and all this kind of stuff to get through it. But then we had C-sections, which was worse in some ways for Wendy, but much, much easier for me. Um, <laughs> because you, they, you scrub in and then you go in and they pull the baby out and it's done. It's like 10 minutes. Um, but man, the pangs of childbirth. What an image. And I just wonder when you, when you read that image, who in your life, who in your life do you groan for like that? Is there anybody in your life that it's, it would be comparable to going through childbirth, the kind of agony and anguish you have longing and hoping for Christ to be formed in them? Oh, I know we have friends. I know we have people we hang out with. I know we even have boyfriends and girlfriends. I know a lot of married people, but I don't know very many people that could say this about hardly anybody in their life. What is it that has, that has caught Paul up into something that's just so out of the ordinary here? What is it about the gospel that makes Paul's heart ache for these people? He's groaning to see Christ formed in them. And notice he's not backing down. I don't know about you, but when relationships get to this point, this intense, this difficult, isn't it so much easier just to not write a letter like this? <laughs> you know, you just kind of walk away. College is one of those times. It's a very dangerous time for you relationally. And, and I mean that probably for a reason that, that you wouldn't suspect. But college is the last time that you can have lots of friends without really having to be a good friend. If you don't really learn how to be a good friend, you can still keep bouncing from group to group and finding people to hang out with. You're around people all the time. When you get out of college, it will never be like this again. If you haven't learned in college how to stick with difficult relationships, you will find yourself very lonely in your 20s. I speak from personal experience, but I also speak from the experience of seeing it time and time again. I see this pattern, and we all do it, where we get in a relationship, a group, a, a group and it becomes difficult there are things that need to be confronted, and we just hate confrontation. We don't want people to not like us anymore. And so we kind of wimp out, and we don't really say things that need to be said. And pretty soon, we kind of start drifting away and look for another group of friends to hang out with. And we just kind of go from group to group. I, I, I can just count in my you know, college years and post-college years just five, six, seven kind of groups that I would drift from one to the other. And it's so easy to do that, but after a while... There's no more groups that are easily found. Paul is laying out a very different way of relating here. It would have been so much easier for him to say, well, gosh, these false teachers have come in. I'm not anywhere near there. I can't do much about it. I mean, the mail doesn't work very well anyway. How am I even going to know if the letter makes it? What's the point of writing a letter? What good is a letter going to do? This relationship's over. They hate me. What's the point? I'm just, why, should, why should I just get mixed up in this? It's probably not going to have a nice result. Um, yeah, and just move on. But he doesn't do that at all. And, and I think, you know, what's fascinating, I think the fact that we have the letter to the Galatians is testimony to the fact that this letter must have done some good. They didn't just crumple it up and throw it away. And I wonder if we give up too easily on our relationships.
And the irony is, right, we're all about community. We talk about community all the time. We talk about relationships all the time. All the studies show that you guys care more about community than almost anything. And yet, sometimes I wonder if what we mean by that is just a group of people that we can hang out with that will never really get in our face. That's not what the gospel calls us to. Do you take the path of least resistance in your relationships? We do it all the time. I actually had a couple one time that came to me and said that they wanted to get married, and I asked them why. And they said, well, because we just get along so well. And I said, do you have a better reason? <laughs> I said, you're, you're, you're supposing that the point of marriage is just to get along. If the point of marriage is for you to grow more Christ-like, maybe getting along isn't the best thing. <laughs> I don't know. It seems to make sense to me. Their marriage is on the rocks, as a matter of fact, which is kind of interesting to think about. What, what kind of goal do you have for your relationships? What kind of goal do you have for yourself? And most importantly, what kind of goal does God have for you and your relationships? What you see laid out here is a, is an, a great example of what God-honoring relationships look like. And look at this. It's conflict. It's messy. People hate each other. Paul says, Have I become your enemy, in verse 16, by telling you the truth? This is relationships in the body of Christ. (laughs) Welcome to it. See, Paul doesn't back down because his goal for them, God's goal for them, is so much bigger than what the false teachers want. Look at this contrast here. The false teachers, what do they want? Look at verse 17. Paul says, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that, here's the ultimate thing they want, so that you may be zealous for them. The false teachers want followers. They want worshipers. They want people that love them and will think highly of them. And no wonder. You see, here's what you need to understand. If the false teachers are believing the false gospel that they've been teaching the Galatians, then one thing you can guarantee, they're incredibly insecure. Because if you believe that God's favor is something you have to earn by what you do, or even if you think that God's favor is something you have to keep by continuing to do all the right Christian things, then I can guarantee you that you are incredibly insecure or else incredibly clueless. If you have any self-awareness at all and you believe the gospel that the false teachers are teaching, then I know that you're pretty insecure and you're probably defensive. You don't take criticism very well. You don't really know how to confront people because you're afraid that they might not like you anymore. All of those things flow out of the gospel that the false teachers are teaching. And so no wonder they want followers. They're not getting any kind of pleasure or smile from God because they believe they have to earn it. And everybody who believes that, the law says, or Paul said earlier, anyone who relies on the law is under a curse. It's not working. 
And so what do you do? You try and find different things to prop you up and make you feel good about yourself, or at least to help you forget how insecure you are. And so one of the best ways to do that is to find people who think you're great and who tell you you're great and hang upon your every word and always want to be around you and suck up to you. And Paul says that's what these people want, and of course it's what they want. If they don't have the gospel setting them free, they have to have, they have to have the worship of the Galatians. You may wonder, why would these people come in and disturb these, these Galatian Christians? Well, here you're getting to the heart of it. Because they've bought into a false gospel themselves, a false gospel that's definitely making them miserable and insecure, and they need people who will worship them, hold them up on a pedestal, so that they can not have to deal with the false gospel that they've bought into. Right? And that's what's happened to the Galatians. Look at what it did to the Galatians. See, you can see the effects of this false gospel by by just looking at this. Look at verse 15. Paul says, What has happened to all your joy? What has happened to all your joy? The gospel should produce joy. Why? Because you found the greatest treasure that you could ever find. Jesus tries to tell this story over and over again. The gospel is like like this great treasure that a man finds buried in his field. And he goes and he sells everything that he might purchase the field. Right? That's joy. The gospel is like the joy that the prodigal experiences when he comes back and the father throws his arms around him and kisses him. The Galatians had that when they understood that their relationship with God was not based on what they did, but based solely on what Jesus did. And most Christians experience this initially in their Christian life. Because most Christians, when they first become Christians, understand that it's not something that I can earn. It's something that has to be given to me, that has to happen to me. We can cry out for it, but we understand that if it comes to us, it's because of grace. And that brings great joy to our lives. But what happens so often to Christians as they go on trying to live the Christian life is they get taught things, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, taught things like, well, you know, that was great, and God forgave all your sins because you really didn't know any better, but now that you're a Christian, you better quit doing all that stuff, or God's really going to be pissed off, and he's going to be disappointed with you all the time. And it doesn't take very long for most Christians to feel like God looks at them and wonders, what did I do making this person a Christian? What was I thinking? They've been a complete disappointment. They've never really lived up to the hopes and expectations I had for them. Most Christians think that that's what God thinks about them. They don't have any joy. They, they think, well, maybe, gosh, I should read my Bible. But you don't want to read your Bible. Your Bible just reminds you of how much God is disappointed with you. And you don't want to, you know, pray or you don't want to, you know, have to talk to God and, you know, by yourself. You don't want to evangelize. Why bring anybody else into this misery? You, everything starts to fall apart when you believe this false gospel. And it always has ramifications for your relationships. Paul says that. You've lost all of your joy. Not only that, not only that, when somebody tells you the truth, you think they're your enemy. Their great love for Paul. I mean, look at what happened. Paul says it seems that Paul 
had some kind of illness. Maybe it affected his eyes. If you try to read between the lines, scholars write whole long books about what was Paul's illness and why, why does he talk about his eyes? It seems that maybe there was something wrong with his eyes because he says, you would have torn out your very eyes and given them to me. And now you treat me like I'm your enemy because I've told you the truth. So what this false gospel has done to the Galatians, it's robbed them of all their joy and it's made them defensive. When they used to be people who would give everything for their friends, now they're defensive and if anybody criticizes them at all, they want to rip their head off. Sound familiar? You've been in churches like that? Yeah, there's lots of churches like that. There's lots of churches that think that the reason God loves them is because of what they do. And you can always tell, even if you don't hear that from the pulpit, you can tell that's what's going on because of the relationships. Defensiveness, bitterness, lack of joy are always connected to the gospel or pseudo-gospel that you believe. See, when they first believed the gospel, their lives were so different. Paul says, you treated me like I was Jesus himself. And they would have torn out, you would have torn out your eyes for me. All false gospels will do this to you. Because if you're trusting in anything else than Jesus, I can tell you this, it's unreliable. And I don't have to tell you that because you already know it. That's why we're insecure. Because we know that what we're trusting in really isn't going to be there for us. I mean, think about if, if your trust is in getting people to like you. Man, that will make you absolutely stressed out because it doesn't take you very long to realize that you just can't control what people think. Maybe you can control what they think when you're with them and your shining personality can win them over, but you have no control over what your friends say about you when you're not around. And you know that. And if you're living for what people think about you, you can't even think about that because it will kill you, will devastate you. But it happens, right? And you know it because if you've ever been in one of those situations where you're talking bad about somebody and it just sort of hits you, I wonder what, I wonder what this group of people says about me when I'm not here, right? Whatever you're trusting in, if it's not Jesus, will make you insecure. It has to because it's unreliable. It won't really work. It may work sometimes. That's the most dangerous kind of idol is an idol that works every now and then. This is why gambling is so addictive, because it works some of the time. It works just enough to keep you hooked. And they actually carefully work those odds, you know. They work the odds so that if nobody ever won, the casinos would go broke. But they know how to let you win just enough that you'll hope that if I go back to this thing again, maybe it'll work. Yes, I know trusting in what my friends think about me continually like leaves me devastated, but every once in a great while, I really get some life from it. And so I'm not letting go of it, right? All false gospels make you terribly insecure. And you're always on this roller coaster ride, aren't, aren't we? Between pride, when we feel like we're really meeting the grade and our idols are working, or self-loathing. In other words, if you, if you think that there's something you need to do to get God to love you and to bless you, then you either are feeling like God is not giving you what you deserve 
because you're doing all the right stuff or you're hating yourself because he's not giving you what you what you think you need. And it's because you're not doing the right things. So you either hate God or you hate yourself. There's really not any other option if you buy into this false gospel. And that's why we start criticizing other people. That's why we can't handle criticism ourselves. Our self-worth, if it's based on us and what we do and what we can do, is incredibly fragile. And we know that. And if anybody gets anywhere near it, look out. Got to keep them away from that fragile self-image. They've turned against Paul because he had the audacity to suggest that maybe there's something going on here that's not right. (laughs) They think he's their enemy, when in reality, he's in this, he's in this conflict with them because he loves them. But of course, again, when the gospel is not our security, when the fact that God has sent Jesus to make you a son is not giving you a sense of solid security, then you're you're touchy and defensive. Now, here's the question, okay? Do you know people like this? Are you people like this? (laughs) Are we people like this? Who do you groan for? Who do you groan for? Do you groan for yourself? I mean, when I say these sorts of things and you say, oh, yeah, that kind of hits home. What do you do with that? Do you say, oh, I'm caught. I'm exposed. I need to try better. I need to be more clever in how I pursue these idols because, gosh, I don't want to be seen as being so pathetic. Or do you say, help me, Jesus, to repent. Help me to believe the real gospel. Not help me get better at trusting in these other things and manipulating these other things, but help me to leave all that. Justin mentioned the idea of of Martin Luther's from the first of his 95 theses, that the Christian life is to be a life of repentances, plural. That's an important plural, because the church at the time he wrote that was teaching that repentance was something you do to enter into the Christian life. But then what you do after that is a thing called penance. Now, penance is different than repentance. Penance is where you promise to God that you won't do it again, and then the priest gives you something to do to show how serious you are. Now, evangelicals do that. It's not just a Catholic thing. Evangelicals do that too. When they say, God, okay, you caught me. Like you might be sitting here right now saying, oh God, you caught me. And when, as soon as I get done from here, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get with you and I'm going to say, God, please forgive me. Man, I promise I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to quit doing that. I'm really going to be different now, God. Just give me another chance. See, penance is basically saying what I really need is an opportunity, another chance. I I need to turn over a new leaf. But the Bible's understanding of repentance is not just turning away from something. It's turning towards something. That's why in Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah says this, In quietness and trust is your strength. Sorry, I'm, I'm mixing it up. In repentance and rest is your strength. In quietness and trust, and repentance and rest is your strength. Those, those things are equated. In other words, repentance and rest, quietness and trust are the same thing. Hebrew poetry works that way. It gives two different words that are, are, are kind of saying the same thing. So the Bible says that repentance is resting. Resting. It means turning from your attempts to save yourself 
from your attempts to try and get God to like you, and it means collapsing on grace and saying, I have no other hope. That's repentance. And that's something that should go on, on and on and on again, because it really is coming to your sanity, coming to your senses. Repentance is having your sanity restored. And it's something that should happen all the time. So when you read the Bible, you should have the, your sanity restored of saying, I can't do this, but Jesus did this. Thank you, Jesus. Let me collapse on that grace. Forgive me for being such an idiot and for being so arrogant to think that I needed to do something to add to the work of Christ, like what he did wasn't good enough, right? That's coming to your senses. That's repentance. And that's what we need. That's what we need. There are two main reasons why we don't groan for people, I think. And, and, and there may be others, but these are the two I think that are probably worth talking about tonight. The first is, I think, honestly, we value comfort more than we value God's kingdom. And what that means is our goal really is too small. We're content with finding a Christian community that will help us feel loved and cared for. But we're not really that interested most of the time in pushing that community out into the places where it's dark and difficult. Our goal is too small. We don't, we, don't, we don't groan for people because we understand that if Christ is formed in them, they may actually start getting in our face about our sin. <laughs> I, I remember when Wendy and I were dating, actually we were engaged, and a counselor that we were meeting with said, now, you know, it's nice, and he heard our little story. And then he said, now, what do you think it was about your flesh, Kevin, that attracted you to Wendy? And Wendy, what was it about your flesh that attracted you to Kevin? He goes, because you need to understand that if you're attracted to somebody and get to the point where you think you want to get married, it's not just the good things that attract you to one another. The, you know, as we talked about it a little bit in, with this counselor, we came to discover that for me, I really don't, I don't know how to feel things very good. And rather than actually have to repent and trust God to feel things, it's much easier for me to be around somebody who feels things and to kind of feel like I'm feeling things by osmosis. Yeah. And so rather than, rather than have to repent, I can sort of connect myself to somebody that does that. And Wendy would say, like for her, it's hard for her to trust. And better and easier for her to find somebody who at least gives the impression of being a rock. See, not feeling things also can come across as being stable and solid and cool under pressure. It'd be easier for her to trust somebody like me than to repent and actually trust God. And that was actually a pretty amazing thing to realize. That in our relationships, sometimes we make little deals where we don't really want them to become more Christ-like because it will actually start to affect us. You ever been in a relationship with, like that? I don't know, maybe you've had relationships end and you wondered why. Maybe that was some, had something to do with it. Maybe one person actually begins to grow more Christ-like and you can't handle it. We say we want somebody godly to date, but maybe we don't really. Maybe we want somebody who's just godly enough to be a good guy or a good girl, but not somebody godly enough to upset our life or to raise troubling questions. Our goal is often too small. But here's the, here's the thing. You better adopt God's goal because God is committed to his goal, even if we're not. And if our goal is merely to have a bunch of relationships which are comfortable, 
we're actually working at cross purposes to what God is working for. We're working at cross purposes to what God sent his son for. We're working at cross purposes to what God has put the spirit in our midst for. And we're not going to prevail. We're not going to prevail. And that's good news. Second reason I think that we don't groan for people or ourselves like we should is we want people's approval more than we long for Christ to be formed in them, which means our love is too weak. We don't want real love. We really want approval. And those aren't the same things. And, and here's the way it works out. You see, if you're seeking worshipers and people to approve of you, you'll never be a good friend to them. You'll never be able to cut, or sorry, you'll never be able to, to confront them. I was thinking of that, of that proverb, and sorry, I started to speak it even before I got to it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? And if not, it may be because you're trusting a false gospel and you can't risk losing the approval of your friends. But if you have Jesus and you know that you're an adopted son or daughter of the living God and that that can never be taken from you, what do you have to lose in confronting somebody. How can, how can we begin set free? How can we begin to be set free? See, I think some of us are low-maintenance people because we suspect that we're really not worth much effort to love, and therefore we want to be as likable as possible. Then there are other people in this room, and me as well, who like to be difficult to love, because you're kind of auditioning people to see if they're really trustworthy, right? And those two people get together, and it's really volatile. It, like, works at first, you know, because you've got the one person who, you know, is really difficult to love, and the other person who's trying to convince them that, you know, that they can really do it. But they're both trying to justify themselves. And that and happens in Christian relationships all the time. The only thing that sets you free from that is the gospel, to find your security somewhere else. You can't just make little tweaks to that relationship dynamic and have it really change. The gospel has to come as a rescue. And here's how it comes. Here's how it comes. It comes when we hear who's groaning for us. You see, Paul is not just a guy writing a letter to some people. He's an apostle. Remember chapter 1? He's an apostle. He speaks for God. When he writes this letter, he is speaking God's word to them and to us. It's not just Paul who's groaning, guys. It's God. The Bible actually says this in a number of places. It's a very interesting image that Paul picks up on, but it's not the first time he's used it. Actually, well, Romans is probably written later, but he uses this image again in Romans in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the whole creation is groaning. And he talks about the Holy Spirit is groaning. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. It's God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is groaning, Paul says in Romans 8. But that's not even the first time that God has said that. Because back in Isaiah, Isaiah, he says these two verses that are just absolutely extraordinary. In Isaiah 63, verse 9. God says this, in all their distress, talking about his people, in all their distress, he too 
was distressed. God has entered into the groaning of his people. And in Isaiah 42, verse 14, it says this. God saying this, For a long time I have kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and pant. This is God. Like a woman in childbirth, he says. I cry out, I gasp, I pant. Do you believe that God is that engaged in what happens to you? In what you're doing, in how you're living, in how you're feeling? When God brings trials into your life, do you see him as one who groans? Who is like a woman screaming in childbirth? Longing and working to have Christ formed in you? Or do you see him as an interfering meddler who just won't leave you alone? God meddles in your life. God sends trials in your life because God loves you. And here's what you need to understand. There is no trial that you experience that does not distress God even more than it distresses you. We have that from the word of God. In all their distress, he too is distressed. So the really amazing thing to ponder is, why is God not ending his groaning? Why does he just wash his hands of us? You may be frustrated by your lack of progress in holiness, but what do you think God thinks? God is entering into this struggle. He's like a woman crying in childbirth until the work that he came to do could be fully consummated. As God looks at his church, yes, it's true that his church cries out and groans for him to come back, but God himself is groaning until his church is what he died for it to be. Do you hear God groaning? I mean, we refuse to groan for others because we're so addicted to our own comfort. But brothers and sisters, Christ gave up his comfort so that Christ could be formed in you. We don't want to groan for others or have anything to do with them growing because it will upset our comfort or upset their comfort. And isn't it good news to know that Christ did not do the same thing. Isn't it good news to know? Your only hope, my only hope here tonight, is that Christ did not consider comfort more important, more important than you becoming like him. He died so that you might become like him when it would have been so much easier to wash his hands of us. Do you think that God knew how difficult it would be to make you Christ-like? Yes, without a doubt. Did he know what it would take? Yes. He knew about the cross. He knew about the cross when he came from heaven. And he thought about the cross all the time. And he had every opportunity to back down from it. But he didn't. He went to the cross and he groaned and he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was committed to never forsaking you. The father sent his son and endured the agony of not being able to look at him 
as he hung on a cross, as he became sin. It's part of the pangs of childbirth that God is talking about. And he's still groaning because things are still not right. Do you remember when Paul gets blinded on the road to Damascus and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do not think that Jesus is just hanging out, having a good old time and everything's fine. Jesus is interceding. The spirit is groaning. The father is groaning, crying out like a woman in childbirth because things are not right yet. But he's not backing down. He's not giving up. It's good news. The whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are groaning until Christ be formed in you. And one of the things it means to be a Christian is to enter into that groaning and to take that groan for yourself. To hear it and then begin to to live it and begin to groan for others. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are groaning for you and are that committed to you and that emotionally engaged with you, don't you think that you can endure a little uncomfortableness (laughs) in relationships? It seems almost silly to say, of course. But in the time when we're looking at a difficult relationship, it seems often like this is going to be too much work. There's too much at risk here. Why does it seem that way? Because we forget who's groaning for us. We forget who's committed to us. We forget the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what their goal is. We forget what they've done for us. And of course, the comfort and the risk of having somebody be upset with you seems huge. But it doesn't seem huge when you come back to your senses and come back to reality and you realize compared to this discomfort here, compared to the security I have from knowing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are groaning for me and are wanting Christ to be formed in me and are working to that end. See, the church is, church, sometimes people talk about the church as a hospital. Uh, I think Paul is saying here that the church is a maternity ward. <laughs> Everybody is groaning. Groaning for themselves and groaning for somebody else. And I tell you, as an application of this, I want you to go away from here tonight and I want you to pray that the Lord would help you learn how to groan for yourself, that the Lord would give you courage to ask somebody to groan for you, and that you would ask the Lord to help you to understand and to see somebody that you should be groaning for. It may be your enemy. It may be your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister. It may be your roommate. It may be somebody who's not even a Christian. I mean, understand the goal is not just for people to get saved and brought into the club. The goal is for people to become Christ-like because it's what they were made for. Evangelism is just a means to that end. But the goal is so much bigger. Who are you groaning for? Who's groaning for you? Thank God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is groaning for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this passage. How could, we, how could we believe this if you didn't tell us it in your word? How, how, how could we be so bold as to think that you care enough about us that you would be like one groaning, that you would discomfort yourself for us? It would be 
That would be incredibly the height of arrogance for us to believe that if you didn't say it in your word. But you do say it. And so, Lord, it's the height of arrogance to not believe it. And we pray, Lord, that you would break through, humble us, that we would take you at your word, and that we would begin to look at others as you look at us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.